Josie Long. Hello. You're on tour at the moment. Yeah. Touring, what was your Edinburgh show? Yeah. Do you like being on tour? This is like your third one or something, isn't it? It's my fourth one. Yeah. Okay. And, I, and the year before that, I did one with Stuart Lee where I supported him. You so were really young when you did that, weren't you? I was like 22, yeah. That's nuts. It was great. It was like, in my head, I thought it was like Master Apprentice. But in his head, I think he thought it was like adult, annoying child. But had you grown up watching him on Fist of Fun and stuff? Yeah, and I was a big fan. Whoa. But I just had to kind of detach that part of it when I was going around with him and just be like, just hanging out with an old dude. So Not that he's old, but slightly older dude. And so it must have been nuts. Did it kind of affect how you did your... Did you feel like you were really learning from it? I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from YesYesMarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. Did you feel like you were really learning from it? Yeah, definitely. For a start, he was really generous with, like, just looking after me and giving me a lot of advice, but not in a way that was... It was never, ever preachy or unasked for. It was always really helpful, really astute. And he... I felt really, like, emboldened because the stuff I was doing then was really weird and I hadn't yet worked out any ways to kind of link it to my life very well or anything like that. And so it was always just really out there. And there'd be times when I'd just die so hard and... He, like, there was this one time in Sheffield where I died really badly and then somebody was standing at the back and somebody went, this is as bad as Ted Chippington. And then Stuart came up to me after and was like, I was so proud of you. I was just really pleased that it was like Ted Chippington. So it was good. It made me more defiantly weird. But you were kind of already a bit of an old hat by that point. Like, you've been doing it for seven years already. You started really young. Yeah, sort of. I started doing it locally when I was 14. There was a um, a stand-up comedy workshop near me, so I used to go to that and just sort of muck around. And then I properly started gigging when I was about 17. Well, 16, 17. When you say properly started gigging? But then I suppose that wasn't even that much. That was like once a fortnight. I didn't really do many. Oh, yeah, it was just... Yeah, I look back on it and it's really odd because there weren't really any other young people at the time doing it. So it was like me and then the next youngest person was about 21 and then everyone else felt to be about 28, which at the time seemed like desperately, embarrassingly old. And now I'm like, oh, yes, 28 years young. Oh. But, um, yeah, it was odd. But it felt very exciting because you'd go to a gig and you'd be like... Ross Noble will be there and you'd be like, how am I here? I saw a lot of good things. Was it intimidating, though? Um, probably less so than, than now because now I think especially because I'm a woman uh, you get a lot of knocks to your confidence almost all the time and when I was a teenager I just didn't really feel that I was just excited I'd never encounter people slagging me off or being rude to me or anything like that I just sort of even when I died I was still really excited to be doing it so it almost you just come out and you're just kind of really full of love and excitement about it and nothing else and you'd, I didn't really appreciate the difference between performing in front of five people in a pub and performing in front of 500 people in a theatre so I would do one and then the other and not really differentiate whereas now I think I'm sort of more nervous in certain situations than I was and Which situations make you most nervous? Um, I'm trying to think I suppose now sometimes because when you're doing your own tours like people come for you and there's a lot of pressure but that's not actually as nerve-wracking as... I don't like it when I'm on at big charity gigs. Like, I did one in Edinburgh for Amnesty. It was in that big conference hall. It's like, really big. 
and everyone else was on was really like storming and great and then I sort of came on I was like Ooh! and then came off and just felt and the worst part is I felt like I'd let amnesty down like there were people there who might have like because of me decided that they no longer supported amnesty as an institution that's when I get nervous when you were saying about Knox and being a woman is it still the case that you kind of I mean now I remember when I first sort of heard of you when there was a, a lot of press around the time that you won the Best Newcomer in the Edinburgh Comedy yeah. Awards in the Perrier's. And then there didn't feel like there was that many female comics. But now, but you know... Do you know what? I don't think that's even really true because at that time, the, the people that I looked up to, like Sarah Kendall, uh, Lucy Porter, uh, they were sort of the, maybe the most prominent ones, but they were really big in Edinburgh. And like uh, Catherine Tate was really big in Edinburgh. Uh, like there were loads of people and I just think I suppose the problem is people our age and younger you're brought up to believe that you're on a level playing field and as an adult you suddenly are brought up to date with the reality of how much uh, you're going to be affected by sexism and it's just such a shock like I came out of university and then suddenly it was like everywhere and I was like and, and I think that's the problem is firstly having to accept that it's not yet the case and secondly, having to accept that it does affect you. That was what's been really hard because I've always thought, oh, well, I'll, I'm different. I'll be all right. And it's like, no, I won't. People are still going to marginalise me and like be rude to me and patronise me. And then if I try and talk about it, they're going to say I'm moaning. And, you know, it's difficult. I think that here's what happened. I, I thought about it the other day and I thought I've been doing this solidly since I was 21 years old, which is seven and a half years. Or if you're a casting director, one and a half years. And I am um, in that time, probably once every, I would say on average once a day, but just for, to be conservative, let's say 300 times a year, I've had somebody say to me, there aren't any funny women, are there? Or, well, women aren't as funny as men. Or, uh, I don't like women comedians, or even, oh, I like you, but I don't normally like women, anything like that, right? Some sort of hint that, for some reason, they're judging men versus women in the arena of comedy, which I think is ridiculous, right? And then I thought, if I had that up, that's three sevens, that's 2,100 times I have been in some way undermined throughout my career that my male counterparts have never, ever had, right? And I, d I don't want to go on about it too much because I find myself talking about it more and more, but like... That's a lot of knocks that you have to take. And to begin with, you don't notice it. And then after a while, you sort of feel like it's your fault. And and it's only now that I'm definitely an adult, I suppose, and that I'm more confident than I was, that I think, actually, it's just starting to really grind me down now and really get to me. And even talking about it now, I can imagine, because often with comedy nerds, especially there's some comedy nerds that really can't bear me, um, but especially the idea of people listening to this being like, I just don't think that's true. And, I, and it's like the truth of my experience is I have experienced that much that my friends have not. And that's stressful. But I think but, that that's something like working in the uh, media industry. I do a lot of music industry stuff as well. That I think it's kind of something of the nature of there being less women so people do that categorization thing that i spoke to a woman recently who said that there was a bunch of board of directors for one of the big record labels or something like that and a woman was put onto the board and she did a terrible job because she was an idiot and so they sacked her and then they said okay we're not going to employ another woman oh god and um and it is that kind of thing of like do you know what i mean like that but it's everywhere and and also the thing about stand up what i would say is there's not fewer women than men 
if you go to open spot clubs, it's at least 50-50. Is it? It is. It, it really is. If you go to workshops, it's half and half. Then what happens is, I think people genuinely get ground down. And, you know, in my own experience, I've had jobs that I didn't get or my friends who are comedians didn't get, but then a model or a presenter does get our place. You know, if you look at a panel show, it'll be like male comedian, male comedian, oh, female presenter. And it's like, why? Even things like in Australia, I did this amazing TV show that I loved, which is called Thank God You're Here, where you have to dress up in a costume and you come out and you have to improvise. And it's just so much fun. It was the most wonderful thing. And um, over here they did it. And when I watch it over, they gave people like Rufus Hound, who at the time was quite an up-and-coming comedian, they gave him that chance. And then you look for his female counterpart and you find Fern Britton or an actor from Coronation Street. And it's like they're willing to give that to men, but to women they're a bit like... Anyway. But do you you think that certainly in terms of kind of visible comedians, and I don't know if I'm misguided here, but it feels like there are more women in the comedy mainstream than there have been in the past. No, that's not true. Is it really not true? Do you think it's... French and Saunders and Victoria Wood were the biggest comedians in the country. Like maybe them and Billy Connolly maybe. They were really prominent. And I think there were... I I just think, if anything, I would almost say in the last few years there's been less women that have actually been really prominent. Because if you look at Mock Week, all the people that got really famous off that were men. That's true. And all the big people doing arenas now are men. The only person who's even touching that is... Sarah Millican or possibly Shappi Sandy, but there's not... And Katie Brand, actually, to be fair, she's doing really well. But um, there's not that many women who've actually been allowed to break through in the last few years. Not that that's something that I'm seeking, but at the same time, like, I don't know. It's a very long, complicated yeah. thing, isn't it? Okay, so what do you do? How do you deal with it? I do my own shows about what I care about to people who are very cool and who never, ever... I never feel like on tour that people have weird opinions like that or judge me. Um, I feel like the people who come and see my shows are just great and interested in what I'm interested in and, and good laughers and lots of fun. And and I also, what I do is I've tried to be more mouthy about it and tried to not apologise as much for talking about it if it affects me. I've not given up. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but like, I've been doing it 10 years and I haven't given up and I don't want to give up. I... I just try my hardest so when people say things which aren't true, which are generalisations, to pick them up on it, which is so tiring. But like, when people say stand-up's really macho, I'm like, no, it isn't. Or stand-up's a man's game. And he's just like, no, it's not. It's just a thing. But, you know, I think there's a big cultural imbalance towards men and I don't really understand why. But it just is, you know. Look at the fact that even films that I adore tend to be male-skewed, i.e. all about men and with a male focus, it's, you know, it's not what I would necessarily choose, but it's what I've got. And, like, even things like football, like, I quite enjoy watching football. My boyfriend really likes it. Um, but it's so strange that men's, that it's such a hangover, I suppose, from men going out to work and women staying at home and then being so separate in society. And I think people have to come to terms with the fact that now men and women... Well, I suppose not for long, thankfully, because the Tories are fucking everything up so women will have to go back home uh, because they won't be able to afford childcare. So maybe what we should really do is embrace a revert back to 1940s society. In fact, that's what we should be doing. Because that's what's going to happen. Well, not the 40s, sorry, the 30s. I'm thinking of the Great Depression. That's what's going to happen. Well, let's talk about this stuff. You have, um, you've become a lot more political in your stand-up. Yeah. Yeah. I think basically, like, I just... Since I went to New Zealand and when I got back, Boris Johnson was the mayor of London and I was, I remember going to New Material Nights and just be, the only thing that I could say was be like, what the fuck? Who did this? What's going on? I'm just really, really stressed and I think before my shows were sort of political but in a, in a much smaller sense, I wanted them to be about kind of 
like the first show I did was sort of about how being more creative can really um, alter your life and how that's like a small way of taking control of it and like being empowered. And then I did one about being eccentric and being unashamedly eccentric. And then I did one about learning, sort of. But this one is more quite explicitly saying that I disagree with the Conservatives, I disagree with their agenda, I think that they're pricks and they don't give a shit about anyone. Um, <laughs> so it's more outward. How are you finding that? It's interesting. It's weird because I don't like upsetting people. And my natural inclination as a comedian is to come out and want people to like me and, and want to like them and really want to sort of enjoy getting to know the crowd and just to be nice and have shows that were really positive and had a really positive energy. Whereas this one, you do generally get people who get annoyed. And I feel in, in what way do you learn? Is it is it that people say things afterwards? Do people say stuff? Yeah, during people the show? walk out and people heckle and people make it known that they are annoyed by making noises. And but the message of the show really is that it's not cool to be complacent. And just because you think you're a nice person, it doesn't mean that you're a good person. And it doesn't mean that you're helping anybody, even yourself, just by being nice on a nice daily basis. And I think that's sort of not really partisan even though my own personal views are quite partisan we're not even partisan just anti what's going on at the moment no that sounds so broad that sounds like I'm not really I I should say as well like it it comes on the back of me trying I'm trying so hard to be better politically informed and I've really tried to change my life to that effect I started volunteering and I'm setting up a a fund to do with paying some people to go to university like I'm trying really hard to be active and informed like now I follow so many political blogs on Twitter and I'm so much more in touch with it all and it feels so good because now it's easier to pick people up when people are just saying stuff for the sake of it or or even when people are moaning so they can get away with doing nothing and was part of the catalyst for that the 100 Days project that you yeah. did? Do you want to just explain what that was? It was called 100 Days to Make Me a Better Person. And um, it was a thing that I set up through the London Web Festival because I've done stuff for them before and we wanted to do like an interactive project. And by that point, I decided that I was going to try and talk to strangers every day for 100 days anyway, just as a fun project just that I could draw comics about and stuff. So then I decided... I'd be like the ringleader and then we'd see how many people we could get involved to pledge and join in. And it just went really, really well. We had about 600 people, I think, signed up. I think maybe only about 400 really... Well, maybe less than that, but I think people did really see it through. I have to confess, I did it and then I lasted about two and a half weeks. It's not bad. And then I was like, I'm totally going to catch up because my thing was... was um, Someone gave me a little first day book, so I was like, I'm going to learn a page of this every day. And then, because it was one of those things that I could go back to, I was like, well, I'll just catch up. Yeah, and then, that's very and tricky. Then I but now, if someone, like if you were to fall down, there's certain things, like I would know how to do, um, what's it called? The, the resuscitation. CPR. Yeah, CPR. But then I would argue then it's totally worth it. Like, yeah, I think yeah it, definitely. It doesn't matter how little you participated in it, really. Like, I think you get stuff out of it. I tried to take on so much for some reason. I was like, I'm going to be politically active every day. I'm going to um, do something new with my body. I'm going to write a joke and I'm going to talk to strangers and I really couldn't do all four of them at once. Some days I would manage one and but I think it did make me more relaxed talking to strangers. I met a couple of people through the talking to strangers that have really enriched my life that I'm still friends with and I had some really fun experiences like I went for dinner at these kids house in um, Brixton. These young, I say young, they're like 22 year olds who are um, all work for different 
charities and organisations and always have like an open table dinner every Monday. And I met all them, really inspiring. And I met a guy who's just been made a councillor for Labour in Tooting. And I met this brilliant girl called Shahena who's raising money for an agricultural project in Mali, which is justgiving.com slash turn the desert green. And I'm like, it's, it was really, I do feel like it's helped me as a person and like, some books have come out of it as well. I've just last week got sent two copies of two books that one of them has been like quite officially published and one is self-published of a guy who did comics every day, which is wonderful. His name's Eddie Ross and it's called Tiny Moments. And this guy called Nikesh who um, did a book called Coconut Unlimited that started out as the 100 Days thing. And I just think, wow, like if we hadn't have done it, they wouldn't have come about at all. That's amazing. Would it be a thing that you'd repeat? We were thinking about doing it now, but I don't really have the stamina to do it this year. So maybe next year. But it's, it definitely woke me up to a few things. And the show is definitely sort of a reaction to, to realising that I was complacent and trying to start doing things about it. You're writing a book. Yeah, yeah. It's called The Secret Island, I think, but that's provisional. And it's um, it's like an imaginative tour guide to England. So it's lots of things about England that are true and lots of, that are really made up and it's kind of each chapter is about a different theme and a different part of the country so there's sort of like essays about different topics but also just kind of there'll be directions and maps to get to very specific very small things and then little rewards when you get there and we're playing around with a lot of digital interactive stuff so there'll be like there'll be ways that once you get to a particular point that I've told you to go to if you get in touch with the the digital thing you can then listen to the online content that will be like a special bit of music for that thing and I'm trying my hardest to make it like a really big puzzle but also like a really silly distraction if that makes any sense so you don't have to go to the places to no I think you could enjoy just looking at all the ridiculous things but there will be big rewards for people who do find things like there's all these embassies of the secret island in different parts of the country and there'll be real physical actual things that you can find and touch and interact with a lot of it is going to be about like a bit of it is going to be a tour memoir as well but it's sort of like a very distracted very imaginative guide to england and other stuff do you still do clubs sometimes it's very odd because i sort of I do little ones and I run a club in London in Camden at the Black Heart which is on Tuesdays once a month that's a club where people present they have to do a little presentation about a hero an unsung hero or a lost thing and that's really good but What's it called? Um, the Lost Treasures of the Black Heart. But I only the only way it's advertised is Twitter because I'm really really rubbish at um, promoting it but it's on every month. But that means that's good because it weeds out people who don't care very much about it you just get like 10 people who are like we didn't think it was on i was going to ask you about that kind of thing so when you won the best newcomer in edinburgh which was when was that it was four years ago right there was so much press about you something i found sometimes with artists that i've loved whether it's you know comedians or writers or bands is that when I'm not kind of indie push glasses up nose like, oh, I hate when they're famous and gone off them, blah, blah. I always love it because I'm always like, this thing that I think is amazing and now more people will know about it. But the downside is that then you get people... So Elbow is an example. I've been a massive fan of Elbow for years and years and years. And when they broke through, I was thrilled. But then I went to one of the first gigs after they broke through and there was people talking during the shows. And I'd never been to an Elbow show where people spoke. And you kind of get people coming who go along because they're like, "Mm, that's... You know, I've heard about this. Did you get any of that when um, things were really kicking off like that? Well, it's weird, actually, because 
I think I've been quite lucky, really, because I did my first tour on the back of Edinburgh. So the first one was quite tricky because I didn't really have a following, really, or anything. And now I've done four tours and the places that I've gone back to year on year have been so great, like really feeling like it's properly built and that there's a good audience there. So I don't think I've really broken... I don't know. I, I wouldn't say I was really in danger of that at the moment. Like, there's not that many people come to see me like... Which is brilliant, but the most I'd get is like 300 people in a place. Like, I wouldn't get 3,000 people or anything. So I think I'm quite lucky. The only time I sort of experience things like that is on Twitter. I think more people follow me if they've seen me, like, on a panel show. You've got, what is it, like 45,000 followers? Oh, God, no, like, only like 25,000. Okay. But it's a lot, but no, maybe 24. But I don't really know why, but I think sometimes I get people who don't really know who I am following me on Twitter. And then when I say something like, because there's something the other day, I was like, I wake up again and I read the news and I'm given yet more reasons to think the current government are cunts, right? You know, it's just a flippant comment like people say on the Twitter. And then just some guy was like, would not let it go and just kept being like, um, I just... And I was like, have you seen my stand-up at the moment? Because I do make it quite explicit. And he was just like, you're just slagging them off for the sake of it. I'm like, well, no, I'm not. I'm saying that I read the news and there were yet more things upset me, but I wasn't being specific. So I get lots of people disagreeing with me on Twitter about politics. Talking of Twitter, I always, when I'm going to interview someone, I mention it and uh, I say, have you got any questions? And loads of people came back with questions for you. A lot of people really love you. Uh, oh, there man. was there was like a couple of marriage proposals. <laughs> Will she be my best friend? That sort oh, of thing. Does that ever get hairy? I know, it just tends to be really lovely. Like, I just can't really get over it. I'm so proud at the idea that people would like my stuff and they would come back and watch it. And also the best bit about touring is coming back and you see the same faces again. It's so exciting because you just think, oh, these people are coming especially because they came last year. And I just love it. I love the idea. And especially like in terms of feminism and being a bit more strident about that or even politics, the idea that there might be people who my age and a bit younger who felt a bit lost and that I could be in any way helpful to them being better people or them feeling more confident is the most wonderful feeling in the world. Students come up to me and they're all a bit nervous and I just feel overwhelmed that they would because I just think who the fuck am I like I'm just some idiot that shouts a lot so I'm I'm really really chuffed at the idea of it. Sometimes you get people when they're sort of so nervous they end up being aggressive I find that quite funny sometimes. In what way? I first saw it when I was supporting Stuart Lee on tour and people used to go up to him who were my age and they were obviously such big fans, they were just really excited to see him. But they'd end up being like, I used to watch your show and I used to really love it. <laughs> it was ages ago though, I don't really care now. And you'd be like, oh, just tell him you like it, it's all right, you don't need to be. I imagine that you would get given and made a lot of presents. Yeah, I do. But then I like to think that I do give a lot of presents. On my first tour, I had so many blisters from making, I made handmade cardboard badges for every gig and gave them away for free and I do try really hard to give people stuff for free I make a lot of fanzines and at my club in um, Camden like I always give people free food and free things and I like the idea of giving as much as possible so I like to think that that is just karmic retribution but I do I get excellent presents this amazing girl in um, Inverness knitted me a scarf with Nye on it for Nye Bevan just wonderful and I think as well because I do really like crafts and homemade things and stuff. And because my first show was really about how much I loved that. So for a while I did get really creative people coming to the show and giving me things and it's quite wonderful really. But then this year I haven't got as many because I explicitly say in my show that selling something on Etsy does not make you a good person. I think people are upset at me. I've rocked my core fan base. 
Other questions on Twitter. Goosefat101 says, are you going to do more comic strip work like the brilliant ones in Dodgem Logic? Oh, well, I would say to Goosefat101, thank you very much for saying that my things in Dodgem Logic are good. I'm very proud. I've done three and the middle one, in my opinion, is no good, but the first two are good. I am, I think. I'm definitely doing another one for Dodgem Logic 7, but I'm going to try and write more. But it's just... It's really hard and it takes ages and you have to be so patient to draw it and colour it in and stand up so easy and quick. Well, not easy, but easy to do, badly or well. Gooseback 101 asked another question which I was going to ask you, which is, what's with all the swimming in cold water? I'm just into it. A couple of summers ago, I went with some of my friends to Highgate Ladies Bathing Pond in the middle of summer and we got really overwhelmed. We felt like the Mitford sisters and it was quite like... Just ridiculous. Like, we went for this thing where we like, it's because it's all murky water. We were like, we'll take our costumes off and it'll be like communing with nature. We had the best thing where we, 1920s aristocrats is how we felt. And I really enjoyed that. And I thought, God, I'd like to get more into that. And then last summer I was in Edinburgh and I got really stressed out and I decided I was going to start going swimming in the sea. And um, it was really cold and it's so invigorating and really, really takes you out of yourself. So when you're really stressed, you just can't be stressed about Edinburgh. And it just was such a brilliant way of getting through Edinburgh. Every time I was a bit hot and bothered, I went down to Portobello and I got in the sea and I had a swim. And I've just sort of tried to carry on. And on tour, me, Johnny and James. Johnny, who's a musician, you know the Pictish Trail? Yes. Uh, he's on tour with us. Okay. It's so wonderful. And James? James Acaster, who is going to be a star of the future. Oh, he's such a natural stand-up. He's so fantastic. And then um, we went swimming in the sea and we went in a really, really fast river that was not a good idea in Scotland. And then a really fast river that was not a good idea in the Lake District where we just kept getting buffeted by currents. And then we went in a lovely river in Wiltshire in Farley and in a lake in Yorkshire that was so cold. It was horrible. I thought I was going to die. It was brilliant. And I've been swimming in Tooting Back Lido. I went yesterday, actually, and the water was 8 degrees centigrade. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, it's fucked up. <laughs> if I'm honest, I'm starting to feel like it's not good. It's starting to feel like, do I hate myself? Do I want to kill myself? But it's so exciting. So we mentioned briefly earlier, we kind of touched on aspirations. And what are your aspirations with a comic? Like, I know, I sort of feel like there's generally there seems to be two different schools. You've got people like David O'Doherty and Daniel Kitson who very much want to have a nice time and make a living. And then there's the kind of, I want to play to stadiums. and I just want to go on the gravy train to Hollywood. That's all I want. I want a golden mansion... In the Hollywood you, Hills. You've done acting, though. You did some acting in Skins, which... Yeah, and we did a sketch. Actually, I didn't think I liked acting, and I discovered that I really do. So I think I might try and do some classes or something, some bit better. Because the problem with being a stand-up is your concentration is not great. Because you just want to break the 4-4 and you want to muck around. So I definitely like to do more acting, but I think I need to train a bit. I don't know. It's very confusing, really, because... Especially with things like television and radio. Like I did a radio series that I really am so proud of. I've got a producer that I've worked with in the long term at Radio 4 that is a friend of mine and we made a great show that, that I really loved and that didn't get a second series. And then last year I sort of, I did a sketch show pilot with loads of friends that I really liked, but we didn't get a series either. And so it's a bit confusing with things. With stand-up it's so good because so much of it is in your control. So even if you don't get loads and loads of people coming, if you do a show that you love and you're proud of, that doesn't change and you know for a fact that it exists you've made it and you can keep doing it you know whereas with telly and radio and films and everything I just don't know how good I am at auditioning and I don't know what the future will hold or could hold like I don't know whether the reason that 
some people play stadiums and some people don't is all down to them or if it's down to a million different factors. But I don't mind. I'm not really desperate to be playing. Like, there's a lot of things that I choose not to do. But I don't know. It's hard. You never want to think that things are closed off to you. But I think my main thing is has always been just trying to do things that I really love and that I'm really proud of and waiting for good ideas and then trying to use them. And what I like about the things that I do like doing, like making magazines in a small-scale way and we're going to start doing a podcast next year, me and my radio producer friend, and, and I've been writing with a good friend of mine just for that. What I enjoy is how much you can sort of self-publish and that's good. I'm sort of flirting with the idea of trying to make something on television and I'm flirting with the idea of writing all kinds of things. But the book is the next big thing that I'm definitely doing. Have you got a date for that or anything? I know I have to have it in by the 1st of April, but maybe that's a joke. Um, I don't know. I think it's out at the end of next year or even the year after. But presumably all of this will be up on your website. No, my website has been attacked by virus. That's the other thing. Like, I'm just so bad at publicising. Like, the thing about like me and like David, who's a friend of mine, and maybe not Daniel. Daniel's a lot more organised than on it. But like me and David, like... Really rubbish at selling ourselves. It's always going to be like, I'm doing a thing, it'll probably be shit. It's just so uncomfortable, the idea of having... I look at comedians that have really good websites and I'm like, why have you got flash on it? Ooh, creepy. And people seem to have to be too organised, I'm scared of them. People, if they follow you on Twitter... Yes, Twitter is actually at the moment the best way to find out about my things. Like, I'm finishing this tour and then I'm not actually gigging that much apart from my club in Camden, which will be... I think it's sort of the second Tuesday of every month is when it's going to be. I like the idea I'm going to go incognito and no one will be able to see me do comedy. That sounds profitable, doesn't it? But you have got a few more tour dates. So people can either follow you on Twitter or actually your website at the moment is redirecting to a website that has all the tour dates. And so the website and the Twitter are... JocelyLong.com and Twitter is just JocelyLong. And if you want, I am also on YouTube under Josie Long and uh, I very, very occasionally put up videos on it. Also, I will be doing a podcast. (laughs) Sorry, I'm just amusing myself now. Also, I will be doing a podcast. It's starting in January or February or something. Please look out for it. (laughs) You do a podcast at the moment with... Robin Ince, yeah. yeah, Which is just, oh my God. Robin Ince has just changed my life so often for the better. He's such a good friend to me. I am very lucky to hang on to his coattails. He basically gets guests like Alan Moore, like Ben Goldacre, who are people who've kind of become my friends and feel very privileged to get to chat to them and get to know John Ronson as well, like fascinating people. And, and we got to meet Mark Gatiss. I think I said his... We had a big talk about people mispronouncing his name and then because we talked about it so much, ever since I've been terrified that I say his name wrong, but I'm pretty certain it's Gatiss. Who is he? Mark Gatiss. Oh, who's in the League of Gentlemen and he writes, oh my God, he writes the most wonderful things. He helped write Sherlock. He writes the really good episodes of Doctor Who. He's, oh my God, the man is a genius. And I was very excited to meet him to the extent I just kept being like, "Um, yes, can I please ask you another question? I think you are good. People can get those on iTunes. Yeah, and um, I can read you one of the reviews already. It goes, why not just eavesdrop on two boring people in Starbucks? (laughs) One star. (laughs) But I love that they think that you and Robin would go to Starbucks. Well, well, exactly. Well, (laughs) I'm not going to say that I never go to Starbucks because now the coffee is all fair trade, but I am going to say I wish I never went to Starbucks. (laughs) I think I always say to people that's my only... When you know when people go, oh, guilty pleasure, listening to Queen, and you think that's not guilty pleasure. pleasure. But I think it should be something that you're genuinely ashamed of or that you genuinely feel guilty about. And I genuinely feel guilty about going to Starbucks. Yeah. But it's better than... Um, that's this other, like, the show that I just did, the Be Honourable thing. 
it's very, very hard, but you just have to keep trying to work towards being the person you want to be and not beating yourself up too much. Because often when people beat themselves up, it's because they're conscientious anyway and they're beating themselves up. But you don't get people who are like real pricks beating themselves up. They're just like, ah, fuck everyone, I'm the greatest. And so it's like my problem with left-wing politics a lot of the time is everyone's constantly arguing with each other about small points of semantics or like with the student protest you've got some people being like you need to fully condone this one tiny act or this and it just makes me want to bang people's head together and go like guys we're the goodies we can't be fighting we're the goodies they're the baddies basically my worldview is very simplistic um but um you can't beat yourself up when you're trying like but at the same time that's not an excuse for complacency so you have to go it's like me I've stopped shopping in Primark because I know it's sweatshops, right? And I stopped buying Nike because I'm disgusted at their sweatshops and this. A few things that I can definitely boycott, like McDonald's. See, you just try, you know, and each day you make a little step further. Oh, I don't fucking know. Everyone's a hypocrite, but you just... If you're a, if you're a good hypocrite, you have to try... <laughs> I don't know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> no, I know what you mean, but I think that's a really good point about the fact that conscientious people beat themselves up. And it's kind of something, and I worry that I'm just trying to make myself feel better, but... My boyfriend is kind of very political and he's an activist and I'm always like, oh, and he's a lot better ecologically than I am and I'm really trying to be and I do. But He's probably made you better than you would have been. Yeah, oh, for, for sure, for sure. And it's kind of recently that I thought, actually, some of these things, maybe I'm not as bad as I think because I don't find it easy, yet I'm still doing it. Yeah. And so, and, you know, and also, right. there's that thing with, if you're on the left and they find something bad about your personal life, it's almost like people would rather write you off for having a fault than accept that everyone's going to have faults but if your sum output is still helpful then that's probably useful and that's probably better and if you're joining in with that as well then I don't know I'm rubbish (laughs) like I think what I should be doing is just being an old bag lady and just ranting on a soapbox (laughs) at the moment just standing up maybe instead of the tv show (laughs) do you know it's looking increasingly more likely that the bag lady will be the case i don't know if you know anything i'm nearly 30 which in lady terms is very old indeed no i i don't know i've i feel genuinely really quite positive because i've started getting more involved with activism even though i'm so angry and upset about a lot of things i feel like the key is to just consider and consider taking action Yes, and it's not an excuse. I tell you what people do, right? The way they'll be like, well, that person's hypocrite. Ah!" And then they won't go, oh, I'm also doing nothing. They'll sort of use pillorying someone as an excuse for them to do fuck all as well. But that's like basic Christian theology of the whole take the speck out of someone else something. (laughs) Look at the log in your own eye, something to do with a speck and something. I think that's a nice point to do. So people, the show Be Honourable, you've still got dates coming up. People can find them if they go to josielong.com. Yeah, or the tour dates are there's the 21st in Norwich at the Playhouse, then the 26th in Whitstable at the Horsebridge Arts, which is one of the best venues in the country, the 27th in Kettering, which is where James Acaster is from, which will be a big homecoming show for him. Um, the 28th is in York at the Picture House, which is, again, one of my all-time favourites. I'm doing two shows there, one in the matinee. Then 29th is Leeds at the Library, and then it's the 1st of December in Oxford at the Wheat Sheaf, which will be really fun. And the 5th of December in Nottingham, which is the last one of the tour. And we've got some in April as well. And it's just be loads of fun. Twitter.com forward slash Josie Long. Josie Long, thank you so much. 
Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to yesyesmarsha.com forward slash off the mic.